We are in the middle of a series called Crossroads. Uh, we, are, we have one week left. It coincides with our 100th anniversary celebration. We are spending time looking back at what God has done for us, even as we look forward to the future. We look forward to our second century together. We picked the name Crossroads because we are a church at a crossroads. We are facing a choice. We can continue to do things the way that we've done them. We can continue to be the church that we have been for decades. We can continue to decline. Or we can dive in. We can grab hold of the mission that God has for us. We can truly take it to heart that we are a people who are called to make disciples. And we can make that our goal as a church. To be disciples ourselves. To make disciples of the ones sitting in the pews around us. And to go into the world and to make disciples. But the choice is ours. It is laid out before us today. Do we dive in or do we not? Do we make disciples or do we not? We are at a crossroads. Over the past several weeks, we've talked through different values that go along with that primary mission of making disciples. We've talked about joyful worship. How when we come in on Sunday mornings, this is the primary thing that we do as the people of God. We hear the word of God preach, we partake of the sacraments, and we receive grace from God. And he works in our lives, and that overflows into what we do throughout the rest of the week. Last week, we talked about humble growth. How we are given to each other. We are members of one body, one community. We are given to each other in order to help us grow, in order to help us reach Christian maturity. We're going to take one more step outwards this week and talk about radical hospitality. And I should probably say up front, hospitality is one of those words. I'm not sure that there's a better word uh, if you come up with one, maybe let me know and we can change the word. Some, sometimes we think of hospitality as, you know, the southern hospitality or something like that, right? Where you get all dressed up, and you have people over to your house, and you, you know, cook a very nice meal, and you've got, you know, all your fine dishes laid out, and everything's just very nice, and everything's just very prim and proper, and you have been hospitable to someone. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is welcoming people into your home, yes, but more so than that, welcoming people into your lives. And as we go through our sermon this morning, it's my hope, it's my prayer that we become a people who practice radical hospitality, who radically welcome those in this room, those sort of on the outskirts who sometimes come to church, sometimes don't, those people who we don't know, but to radically welcome them in and show them the love of God. Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts 2, 42 through 47. I encourage you to hear these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Will you pray with me once more? Lord God, I pray that you would be with your word as it goes out. May the words that I say this morning not be my words, but may they be yours. Speak through me, God. Use me for your honor and for your glory. Lord, I pray that when or the congregation leaves this morning, they are not filled, Lord, with any sort of appreciation for me, but I pray that they would leave thinking what a great God you are, having experienced your grace in the word as it's proclaimed this morning. Lord, as your word goes out, I pray that it would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it out. Make hearts alive by the preaching of your word. Ignite faith, Lord, in the hearts of those who are here. Draw us together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in preparation for this sermon, I went back and I looked at um, different sitcoms by decades, starting in the 50s and going on up until today. So I thought it could be kind of fun to kind of go through and and guess, kind of do like maybe a little bit of an interactive thing. Uh, What sitcom you think was the most popular one from the the past? We we don't have data all the way through today, but let's just try this and see what happens. The 1950s, you guys know what the most popular sitcom in the United States was. 1950s. I love Lucy. Bingo and absolutely correct. 1960s. Does anybody know? The theme song is a ringtone for a person sitting in this room. Andy Griffith. It's, it's, her, it's her ringtone, just for the record. So the 1950s and 60s, good family sitcoms, right? Things that focus around life at home. 1970s, maybe a little bit of a change from that. Any, any guesses? No. Happy Days, no. It's a military one. MASH. Never actually seen that one. Um, does it, is it a Korean War or Vietnam War? That's Korean War. Never actually seen MASH, maybe I need to. But we have, this, we have this, maybe a little bit of a transition, but back you know, in the first, in the three decades that we've talked through, there are you know, a number of military sitcoms, uh, you know, things like Hogan's Heroes, things like Gomer Pyle, things like MASH, uh, but really MASH was the last of them. In the 1980s though, you get a, a shift in what sitcoms were, what sitcoms focused on. You still had family-focused ones, uh, but as far as I know, a family-focused sitcom never, never made it to the, the top slot in the decade. Uh, and really, you didn't see any military-focused sitcoms at all after that. So in the 1980s, do you guys have any guesses what was the most popular sitcom? Not, not Friends. That aired much later, Dave. Cheers! Cheers! 
right? I've never seen Cheers either, but I know that they like go to a bar and there's a guy named Norm and that's literally all I know about it. But I also know that it was really influential in, in sort of changing sitcoms. And from then on, you begin to see sitcoms focused around groups of friends, united by work or you know, common interest or the bar that they go to. Any guesses for the 1990s? Dave. Friends! Oh, man. Just keep guessing. It'll show up one of these times. This is where the data starts to get a little bit murky. Seinfeld doesn't show up because Seinfeld was both in the 90s and in the 2000s. But in, in the 1990s, you have shows like Friends, Seinfeld, Frasier. Uh, you also had family shows during these times as well. The Cosby Show was in the 80s. Uh, Home Improvement was in the 90s. Those are both very popular shows. In the 2000s, the data starts to completely wash out, but that gets into shows that I'm familiar with and have grown up watching. Uh, one of the shows for people of my generation that's really, really foundational and really forms part of our vocabulary is The Office. Right? It's a TV show about a group of people who work in this really, really dysfunctional office, and they kind of have this weird family relationship with each other. Right? Michael Scott's their weird dad, uh, and they you know, kind of hang out together. And, it centers around that. You also have shows like Scrubs, people work in a hospital. The 2010s, as you go on, you get TV shows like Parks and Rec, once again focused around a workplace. You do have family shows in this decade, like Modern Family, but, you, but most of the shows are sitcoms related to something else. Community is one of my favorites. It's really foundational for me in a lot of ways. People you know, in a study group at a community college and they are just kind of bonded together by how ridiculous their college is. And shows like The Big Bang Theory where people, you know, they kind of live together, they work together. That's one of Haney's favorites, so yeah. Whole list of sitcoms. Why am I bringing this up on a Sunday morning while I'm preaching the gospel? I think that the shows that we watch tell us something about the human condition. Got it very deep right there, right? This is, when I, when I say this, I, I do not mean to say, oh, we had a bunch of family shows and then things shifted and oh, we need to get back to family values or whatever. That's, that's not my point. My point is that as we watch TV shows, as we see shows about groups of people coming together united by work, united by common interest, united by school. We see people living in community, see people being drawn together in relationship, and there's something that appeals to us about that. We see people who work in a dysfunctional office, and there's something that speaks to us about that. What if we had those kind of relationships? We see people who, you know, are part of a Spanish study group at a community college, and we say, what if we experienced relationship like they experienced relationship? Well, I have good news for you this morning. God has given us a people to experience that relationship with us. That innate human need that calls to us as we watch TV shows as ridiculous as the Big Bang Theory or Community or Parks and Rec or whatever it is, God has given us a group of people to fill that need and that desire in our lives. Our scripture reading this morning was from Acts chapter 2, and I want to go back there if we can. We're going to focus on that text this morning. 
But let's zoom out a little bit and put it in context. So the book of Acts was sort of written as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke was one of four Gospels that told the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Acts picks up right where the book of Luke leaves off. Jesus ascends to heaven at the end of the book of Luke. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven. And he tells his disciples who were becoming apostles. There's sort of a shift there. Disciple means learner. An apostle means someone who's sent out. So Jesus tells his disciples, wait for the Spirit to come on you. But when the Spirit comes on you, you're going to spread my gospel. You're going to make more disciples in Jerusalem and Judea all throughout the world. And in the book of Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's what the apostles slash disciples do. They wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And on the day of Pentecost... This feast day where Jews from all over the world come to Jerusalem to celebrate that day. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And you have disciples, fishermen, people who are not formally educated. They begin to go and they begin to preach the gospel in these incredible ways. Peter preaches and people hear the message that he's saying. He's probably speaking Aramaic, maybe Greek. And they they hear what he's saying in their own language and in their own tongue. And all these people hear, and they, they marvel at what's happening as Peter preaches one of the first sermons. He preaches about how Jesus Christ is alive, how that Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, is declared to be the Christ. He's declared to be the Messiah. He's declared to be the king that they had all been waiting for. And so he calls them. He says, repent and believe. Be baptized. Come and join this group of people devoted to telling other people about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming. And scripture says that 3,000 people, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The day before, there were 120 people gathered in an upper room, hiding, because just a couple months before, their rabbi was murdered, and they worried that they might be next. But in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, and they are filled with boldness, and they proclaim to all these people gathered what God has done in and through Jesus, that he truly is alive, and because he's alive, everything is different. And 3,000 people repent of their sins, they're baptized, and they join the church. This early church was not without problems. Just because this had happened, just because the Spirit was poured out, doesn't mean that the kingdom of God had come in full. They were still sinners. And as we read through the book of Acts, we, we would see that. We would see persecution coming on the church in the very next chapter. We would see the church having internal strife and division as Ananias and Sapphira lie about a gift that they made to the church. We see fighting between different groups of Jews as the Gentiles come in and they say, do they have to become Jewish in order to be saved? Is this okay? But for one glorious paragraph, we see the church working as it's supposed to. For one paragraph, we have the church working and living in harmony. That's this paragraph. 
Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And we really see three different movements here. And it kind of parallels the movements that we have in our value statement, moving from the inward to the outward. First, they were devoted to teaching. And they devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The gospel was central to them. The reason the gospel is central is because it trumps everything else. The gospel proclaimed that because Jesus is alive, everything is different. Because Jesus is alive, we are called to repent of our sins, to be baptized, to join the church. Because of that gospel, everything is different. You can have a neighbor, someone who has the same skin color that you do, someone who worked in the same industry that you do, someone who has a similar family structure to you, someone who cheers for the same football teams as you do, someone who votes the same way as you do. But if they're not a believer, you don't really have very much in common with them at all. In fact, you have much more in common with someone on the other side of the world who lived a thousand years ago, who doesn't speak your language, whose skin color is completely different, whose politics is completely different. But if you are united by Christ, then you have a deeper bond with each other than any other kind of bond. The reason that the word of God is central is because what we are doing here in church, we're not just an interest group. We are not just a group of people united by our dysfunctional office or by our community study group or because we're all stationed in Korea together. We are a group of people united by so much more than that, something much deeper. We are united by the gospel. The gospel trumps everything else. We are a people who know that we are sinners. We are a people who know that by God's wonderful grace we are brought in together. That fact unites us. When we come into this place, we set aside every other loyalty, every other allegiance, because we are united together purely by the cross of Christ and what he's done. So the early church was devoted to the teaching because the teaching of the gospel was central to who they were. It reminded them that they were a people who were bought with a price that they were a people who belonged to God. There's a word here in Acts chapter 2 in the same verse that's worth diving into and explaining a little bit. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Fellowship's one of those weird christian words that we use a lot, and sometimes the meaning gets a little bit whitewashed and drifts away from what it is supposed to be. And I'll admit, I use this word sometimes. And it's not that the, the meaning I'm about to say is inappropriate, but there's a deeper meaning. So we'll, we'll have fellowship dinners, right? And we have fellowship halls, and we have times of fellowship with each other. And what we often mean by that is that we just spend time talking to each other, right? Oh, how was your day? My day was good. Oh, how's, you know, Johnny? Oh, Johnny's doing, Johnny's doing great. He's off at, you know, whatever college doing, whatever and we, we just spend time having small talk conversations with people. When Acts 2, verse 42, says that they were devoted to fellowship, 
That's not what it's talking about. We, could say, we can use the word fellowship of those things, but the meaning there is deeper. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago when we preached on joyful worship? We went to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to look at what communion is. There's a phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it's verse 16, that says when we, when we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, we participate in Christ. We receive something there. Is not the cup that we drink, is not the bread that we break, a participation in Christ? There's a union with Christ that takes place when we receive the bread and when we drink the wine. That word participation there is the same word for fellowship. It's a sharing together, a participation in each other. We confess every week in the Apostles' Creed, we did this just a few minutes ago, the communion of the saints. That's what it's talking about here. We are united together because of Christ. And as we partake in communion, right, as we joyfully worship and partake in the sacraments, we are reminded that we are united to Christ. And as we take together of the sacrament, we are united together. We have a bond that cannot be broken because it's a bond that's shared in Christ. That's why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about how we are a body. We are one body that is knit together. And some of us are different body parts, right? Some are the hands, some are the mouths, some are the eyes. But we are all together. We are members of one body. Together, united, because of the teaching of the word, because of the teaching of the gospel, that we are sinners and we need to be saved by Jesus Christ. We are united in him and we share a bond together that is deeper than any other bond. It's deeper than the bonds of your friends. It's deeper than the bonds that politics can bring us that sports can bring us, it's deeper even than the bonds of our family. We are knit together. We have fellowship with each other. We participate in one another. That's step one. They were a group of people who were united together by the word and by the sacraments. I should note as well that this was a radical idea in ancient times. So the ideas of, of class, of a social hierarchy, kind of exist today a little bit, but generally we tend to be an enlightenment society, one that, one that really values uh, equality among everyone, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, you're all equal, and that, that's a good thing. But in this day, that wasn't necessarily a given. In this day, if you were you know, a member of, of the upper class, if you came from a family with money, if you were you know, a religious teacher, now you didn't have much to do with the people of the lower class, the beggars, the slaves. You lived your lives separately. So for the early church to be formed of people from every way of life, from every social class, whether rich, whether poor, whether free or whether slave, it was a radical thing to be united purely around 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us. The early church had a common participation, and that common participation, that fellowship, spilled out into the streets. The people shared their money, and they shared their time. The scripture says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Think about that one for a second. Let's just pause and think about that. For our American minds, for our values of you know, personal property and individual wealth, this may, this may dig in a little bit. This may be a little bit hard to grasp, and we may be quick to you know, quickly excuse it and say, oh, well, well, they had their personal property, but then they shared everything. But Scripture tells us very, very clearly that they shared all things together. They held all things in common. And truly, if you will love your neighbor as yourself then the need of your neighbor is just as valid and just as important as your own need. And the early church practiced that. Keep in mind, you had people from vastly different backgrounds. You had very, very wealthy people in the early church. You had very, very poor people in the early church. And they practiced having all things in common. Oh, someone has a need that needs to be met. Well, I'm united to them. Like, we share a common participation in Christ. I love them just as I love myself. So, of course I'm going to sell some of my property so that they can have food to eat. Of course that's going to happen. Because what else would happen? We are together in this. That was the attitude of the early church. And lest we, lest we think and lest we imagine that, you know, it was just the, the very, very rich giving away money that never really affected them. We have stories in the coming chapters of people selling land for the benefit of other people. You know, we don't, we don't have the, the individual stories, but it's easy to imagine, uh, you know, a person who's very, very poor coming into the assembly. You know, they're meeting together in the temple court or in someone's home, and they, they come together and they say, this week's been really, really, really difficult. I've had a hard time feeding my family, and I think that I might have to sell my, my youngest son into slavery. It's been a really, really hard week. This was a reality for people in the first century. What the early church would have done is say, no, don't, don't do that. We're going to provide for you. I have this other piece of property. I have this second car. I have this cottage up north. I'm going to sell it because I don't need it. You need it. I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to give you what you need to survive. If necessary, they maybe, maybe adopted the son that was struggling, maybe became a benefactor to them. But they were generous with their money because they knew that they shared a common participation. They were united in Christ. So they held everything together. They were generous. At no point did they say, this is my money, I've earned it, I need it, it's for my own benefit, it's for my own good. They said, no, 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 how can I bless the community with the money that I have. 
the common participation they had spilled out into the streets and the money that they spent and the time that they spent together. Listen to this. Verse 46. Day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day. Can you imagine if we did church every day? That would be a lot, right? I know, I know that in the early days of this church, there would be a, you know, a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service. I know that the German Brotherhood would often kind of go well above and beyond that, and they would have services on Saturday night and Sunday afternoon and often on Wednesday night as well. But the early church met day by day. They met in the courts of the temple. The temple was, you know, sort of had a plaza that was a wide open meeting place, and they would get together, and they would have the teaching of the word there, and they would sing together there and pray together there, and they would meet in homes. Now, keep in mind, there were, there were 3,000 of them. Many of those were people who came from their original countries, but the original people who met in the upper room were 120. They met in people's homes. So that meant that they kind of split off into other groups. Sometimes they met in large groups, sometimes they met in small groups, but they participated in each other's lives day by day. They spent time together. They ate meals together. This phrase has been kind of overused in Christian circles, so I'm hesitant to say it, but it's a good one. They did life together. Yes, they came and gathered on Sunday morning and heard the preaching of the word and ate the bread and drank the cup, but when they went out, that wasn't it. Because they had a common participation in each other, because they were united to Christ, and because they were united to Christ, they were united to each other by a loyalty that trumps everything else. Because of that, as they went forth into the world, they were generous with each other. They shared their money with each other. They shared their time with each other. They were united by the teaching of the gospel, and then that spilled out into the streets. And I love this phrase. I absolutely love this phrase at the end of verse 46. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. What a statement that is. This life that they lived, this participation that they had, this sharing that they had, blessed them. They lived these lives together having glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And this is where we get into the third ring of that. It starts with joyful worship, with what we do on Sunday mornings. It spills out into the money that we spend, into the time that we spend. But then it goes out to our neighbors and to those who haven't heard. We've talked a lot, especially through the Deuteronomy series, about God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? The curse happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are driven out of the presence of God, and God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to undo all of the curse that came on the world because of Adam and Eve. I'm going to undo all of that. 
And I'm going to fill the world, instead of cursing, I'm going to fill it with blessing. Part of that was that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham and his family. And as we were going through Deuteronomy this summer, we talked about that a little bit, how Israel and the way they lived their lives, and there's a reason that our Old Testament reading this morning was from Deuteronomy, was from commands to Israel about how they were supposed to treat the poor among them and and the foreigners who were living among them. Israel was supposed to live their lives in such a way that blessed the world. The world was supposed to see it and be blessed and brought into the people of God. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Israel did not function like they were supposed to. But today, we are the children of Abraham. We are the people of God. And in this brief glimpse into what the church is supposed to do and function, we see the church had favor with those around them. They had favor with all the people. As they lived in this radical way, practicing radical hospitality, sharing their time, sharing their money, the people around them looked at them and they said, huh, that's different. We're used to being people looking out for their own interests first. We're used to rich people taking advantage of poor people, not giving to them. Would you look at that? Look at what they're doing. It's incredible. The early church, just by living their lives, was a witness to what God had done in and through them. The people looked And the church had favor with the people who were around them. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. It's important that we we stress this bit. For churches that are small, for churches that are declining, for churches that feel that drift, sometimes the temptation can be, tell us what program we need to run to get more people. Tell us what boxes we need to check. Tell us, do I need to stand on one foot with my hand on my stomach and my other hand on my head? Will that bring more people in? This text is a reminder to us that no matter how we live our lives, it's not up to us to bring people in. It's the Lord who does it. And don't get me wrong, God will use how we live our lives. God will use our radical hospitality to the community, to each other. God will use that to bring people in if he so desires. But ultimately, it's up to God. It's not a magic trick or an incantation in order to get a blessing on our lives. It's not like we have to, oh, pray a certain prayer a certain way, and oh, boom, done, God will do it. God may not do it, but ultimately it's up to him. But it's worth pointing out that whether or not the people saw others added to them, they were blessed anyway. They received their food with glad and generous hearts as they participated with each other in Christ, as they shared their time and their money. They were blessed by that. 
whether or not anyone else came in. And it's also worth noting that as the people came in, they, weren't, they didn't come in for the benefit of the church. They came in and were saved themselves. Right? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There were people who were on the outside of this early group who needed to be saved, who needed to be delivered from their sinful lives and from the wrath of God that was coming on them. And the apostles, in their teaching, they had the answer, they had the message that Jesus Christ is alive, and because of that, everything's different. So repent and believe so that you can participate in the kingdom of God that's coming. Friends, we want people to be saved. We want disciples to be made. We want the people who live around us, who we spend time with, when we're not at church, whether we're having hobbies, whether the people we know from school, people we knew from work, we want them to be saved. We want them to experience the beautiful, glorious grace of Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, to trust him alone for their salvation. We want that. And may it be that God will bless us And use us to bless the world, to see people brought into the number of his people. Three stages to this. There's the worship that they had together. They received from the apostles the teaching. And they, because of that teaching, they knew that they participated together in fellowship. And that spilled out into the streets. They spent time and they spent money together. And as they lived their lives with radical hospitality, as they sought to bless the neighbors around themselves, God worked in and through them to bless their neighbors and to bring in those who were being saved. We opened with a sort of silly illustration, just going back through time and remembering sitcoms that we watched growing up or when we were younger. But it's worth remembering that those around us watch shows like that because they want to belong to a community. Because maybe their homes aren't what it's cracked up to be. Maybe in their personal lives they have brokenness and they just want to be accepted for the person that they are. We have a wonderful opportunity to bring this panacea to a broken world. To reach out, to truly accept those around us. To truly fellowship, participate with each other. To truly show hospitality to the world. So it's my hope and my prayer that as we face our second century, that as we look at the next 200 years, 100 years, to our second, you know, 200 years, or the next 200 years. But it's my hope that as we look to the next 100 years, that God will use us, because we are united together in him, that God will use us to bless each other throughout the week by spending time with each other, by meeting each other's needs, and that God will use us to bring in those who are lost and in need of a savior, 
May we show radical hospitality to each other. I should note before I close, once again, that that doesn't have to be something that's incredibly difficult, incredibly time-consuming, right? It doesn't necessarily mean getting out your finest china or dressing up. It means just as they live day by day in the temple in their homes, live your life day by day with those around you. Invite people over for meals. Go shopping with people. Say, hey, oh, you're going to go do that? Can I come along? Let's talk about how we're doing. Let's talk about our faith. Let's talk about what we are learning from God. May we be people who share life together, who practice radical hospitality, and by doing so, show the kingdom of God to the world around us. Will you pray with me?